Recently, I read a book entitled 50 Children, One Ordinary American Couple's Rescue Mission uh, into the Heart of Nazi Country. Now, as the name suggests, the story is a true story about an ordinary American couple, Gil and Eleanor Krauss. They were a Jewish couple living in Philadelphia in the 1930s. Uh, Gil was an attorney, and Eleanor stayed at home to watch their two young children. But one day, uh, Gil's friend, Louis Levine, asked him a very serious question. He asked him if he would help devise a plan to help rescue Jewish children from Austria. Uh, They were heavily persecuted because of Hitler and the Nazi occupation. And Gil immediately said yes. He was very aware of all the trouble that was occurring and what people were going through. It's a misperception to think that uh, what Hitler did was uh, kind of kept secret from the rest of the world. Major newspapers were reporting things in the 1930s, including Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, named for all the uh, glass shattering because of the Jewish businesses and stores and synagogues being destroyed. That was in papers around the world. They were aware of things that were going on. They knew that that night, 267 synagogues were destroyed. 91 people were killed. And 30,000 Jewish men were sent to prison, uh, to, uh, off to concentration camps like Dachau. It was terrible. They understood the brutality and the persecution that was happening around the world. And so Gil immediately said yes. They focused on Austria because as bad as things were for the Jews in Germany, it was actually worse in Austria. When Hitler came to power in Germany in 1933, uh, he brought his anti-Semitism and the persecution kind of ramped up over the years. But when the Nazis marched into Austria uh, in March of 1938, that persecution began full force immediately. By the next month, there was an edict that stated all Jews must leave the country. And by April of 1938, just two months after the Nazis had annexed Austria to be a part of Germany, Adolf Eichmann came to uh, Vienna because he was angry at how long the process was. He wanted all the Jews out, and they were willing to let them leave. In fact, a lot of the Jews said at that time, It's easy for us to get out. At the beginning, it was easy to get out, but it was hard to find any place that would take us. The visas were already uh, maxed out in so many different countries. For the United States, they had a strict quota on the number of immigrants that we could receive from Germany and Austria, And tens of thousands of people had applied well beyond the the limit. And so it was very difficult for people to find a place to go. Adolf Eichmann entered into Vienna, and he took one of the mansions of the Rothschild family. They were a famous Jewish banking family, and they had a headquarters in Vienna. 
and they seized all the family's shops and all their artwork and possessions and their houses, and they took one of the mansions and transformed it into a place that was devoted to moving the Jews out of Austria. It was a government office, the central office of Jewish emigration. And one of the SS officers serving under Eichmann described it in this way. He said, this building is an automatic factory. Let us say a flour mill connected to some bakery. You put in at one end a Jew who still has capital and has a factory or shop or an account in a bank. He passes through the entire building from counter to counter, from office to office. He comes out the other end. He has no money. He has no rights. Only a passport in which it is written, you must leave the country in two weeks. If you fail to do so, you will go to a concentration camp. They understood how dire things were in Austria. And so Lewis asked Gil to come up with some way to bring Jewish children out of that country and into safety in the United States. Well, Gil went home to tell his wife of his decision, and she was terrified. Eleanor didn't want her husband uh, to do this. She knew how risky it was. They were Jewish. She didn't want him going to any place that was controlled by Hitler. She was very aware. She read the papers. She didn't want to risk losing her husband. She didn't want her children to risk losing her fa- their father. And so she was very much against the idea. But as Gil started talking about all that would have to be accomplished, she realized that not only did he have to go, that she would have to be a part of that plan in order to help him get everything done. And so they committed to doing this extraordinary act, a very ordinary couple willing to risk so much. There was a huge problem because all of the visas had been issued. And so Gill started to work studying the immigration laws. And he came across this problem. He saw that by the number of visas that had been issued, many had been issued and fewer had been used. Not every one had been used, and he couldn't figure that out. Why wouldn't the people use their visas? And so he talked to different people in the State Department and such, and they finally told him that there would be some that, because they were so desperate to get out of the country, they were applying for visas from several countries, and they took whichever one came first. But far more often that because of passing through the central office for Jewish emigration where they were stripped of all their possessions, they no longer had the financial or the physical health to travel. And so they were left behind. And so Gil realized that there were these visas that were kind of in limbo. They had been issued, but they were kind of, they were unused. And so he went to work convincing uh, United States government officials that even though a a visa had been issued in someone's name, it wasn't ever going to be used, and they could actually reissue it to a child. Now, the government is 
reluctant to issue things that have already been issued. But he convinced people on this side that they would accept the children if the visas were given in Austria and Germany. And so they made plans to travel, and eventually they got all the affidavits, the work for the foster families. They knew they could bring 50 children out of Austria. And so they lined up actually 54 families that would take these children in and made a commitment that if they were never reunited with their families, they would provide for these children until adulthood. They went through this process, and finally, they traveled to Germany. And from Germany, they entered into Austria, and they saw the terrible persecution of Jews in that area. They were able to meet with the consulate office, and finally, after several weeks, convince them to issue those kind of in-limbo visas for the children that they could get out. They had a pool of children to draw from. They decided to choose from the hundreds and hundreds of children whose parents had already applied for visas or, or who were going to apply for visas. And out of all of those hundreds of children, uh, they interviewed the parents and then they interviewed the children. They couldn't take any young children, younger than four, because they couldn't care for babies and toddlers on the trip. They couldn't take any children who were sick because they would be denied entry into the U.S. And they had to make sure that all of the children had the emotional maturity to make this long trip, especially when they were separated from their parents. And they were finally able to select 50 children. The day came that they were about to leave the country um, And one of the little children, one of the youngest, a five-year-old boy named Heinrich, came down very sick and wasn't able to travel. And so at the last minute, they went back through that entire list and tried to find someone they could get in to take that 50th spot. And they selected the older sibling of one of the other children. And they were able to get his passport quickly. And finally, they were able to sail to America. To show you how serious the situation was, the five-year-old boy named Heinrich, uh, who was too sick to travel, they discovered later on that three years after he was killed in the death camp of Sogobor. And so they were able to literally bring life to these 50 children. But it came because they were willing to risk their own to lay their own needs and desires aside for the sake of people they didn't even know. They understood that with both of them gone, they could both die. They knew this situation, war could break out at any moment. And they also knew that they were risking their children back at home. They were risking leaving them as orphans. But they knew they had to try something to help as many children as they could, and they were able to bring 50 children to safety. This morning, I want to continue on with our sermon series, Raising the Dead. We've been talking about how Christ has come to bring new life to all people, that Christ is about raising the dead, from the story of raising Lazarus from the dead to his own death, um, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection Christ brings new life to all. 
Now, when we face situations of darkness, Christ brings light. When we face situations where we're in despair, Christ can bring us hope. And we face situations of loss or death, Christ brings new life because he is about raising the dead. This morning's scripture passage is a familiar and yet a really difficult passage. It's the one where Jesus talks about anyone who loves his life will lose it, and anyone who hates his life in this world will gain eternal life. And we've wrestled with that, uh, that sentence for years upon years. And so I think there are three things that we can discuss this morning that can bring meaning to that passage for us and meaning to our own lives in ways that bring new life to the world around us and new life for us as well. First is that Jesus told them, the hour has come. Now, at the beginning of this section of scripture, something really strange happens. A group of individuals comes to Philip and they ask him if they can see Jesus. Well, instead of taking them to see Jesus, instead he goes over to talk to Andrew about it. And they talk about it, and instead of going back and getting the group and taking them to Jesus, instead the two of them, Philip and Andrew, go over to see Jesus and they talk about what they should do. Now, Jesus responds to them and he says, the hour has come. Well, This is all very odd. Why is this so awkward? A group of people want to see Jesus. Why didn't they just bring them over? Well, the answer is really found in verse 20, which uh, you need to go home and read because we didn't read it today. And it kind of gives you the clue. It says a group of Greeks came and then they went to Philip and asked him to see Jesus. Now, remember, when we've been studying the Gospel of John, one of the things that we've said is anytime you see the word to see, it's not just physical eyesight that the author is talking about. It's spiritual sight. It's knowing, and it's a part of discipleship to follow Jesus. If you go all the way back to the first chapter of John, you remember that Jesus called his disciples in this way. He said, come and see. And then later on in the first chapter, uh, Philip has become a follower of Jesus, and he's talking to Nathanael about Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael kind of pops off and quips, well, can anything good come from there? And Philip says, come and see. And so when uh, this group of Greeks came to Philip and asked to see Jesus, Philip didn't take them. He goes over to talk to Andrew about it. And it's because they were Greeks. Now, the author of this book isn't saying that they were Greek-speaking Jews. He's indicating that they were Greeks. They were Gentiles. And that is why uh, they were, the disciples were so confused by this, because they believed that the Messiah had come to rescue and save the Jewish people. And here are Gentiles wanting to see, wanting to follow, wanting to understand who Jesus is. And so they didn't understand that. They talked to, about it, the two of them, and then finally they asked Jesus what to do. 
And Jesus answers their question, the question that's rolling around in their minds, and he tells them, the hour has come that the Son of Man must be glorified. And what he's saying is that the Son of Man has come for all people. He's telling the disciples that they need to change the way they see other people. They need to transform their minds and how they think and see and react to others. And sometimes our minds and the way we see others needs to be transformed. This past week, I had the opportunity to serve on the high school youth mission trip. And I can just tell you that we have incredible youth at our church. Phenomenal. The the middle school youth uh, did a mission trip as well, and they went to Branson, Missouri, and they did different construction projects at a church, and they served at a, a thrift shop, and they, in, they did incredible things and were a great group, had lots of fun. The high school group, one of the things they did in California was serve at the uh, Union Rescue Mission, and this is a rescue mission that serves the people who are homeless in Los Angeles, specifically on Skid Row. Skid Row is an area, a 54-block area, that's kind of been set apart and designated uh, the largest continually occupied homeless community. In Los Angeles, the numbers of uh, people who are homeless has really increased over the past years, a uh, 75% increase in the past few years to the point where they now have 55,000 people who are homeless. Now, part of that group is designated as sheltered homeless, meaning they, uh, they couch surf and they stay with friends or family and they go from apartment to apartment, couch to couch, with other people, but they're under a shelter. But the vast majority, over 44,000, are unsheltered, meaning they're the ones that live in the tents or on cardboard sheets or directly on the sidewalks. 44,000 in Los Angeles. And the Union Rescue Mission is one of the oldest and largest missions to serve this community. As we came into Skid Row, it was just a jolt to the senses because so much around Los Angeles is pretty. We were all having fun on our vans. We were looking for the Hollywood sign. We were staring at all the palm trees and all the pretty houses. And we came through almost an invisible barrier. And all of a sudden, we're in Skid Row and The sidewalks are lined with tents and cardboards and people sleeping everywhere with tattered blankets. People were walking down the middle of the street, seemingly oblivious to other traffic. It was really this place of of darkness and, and such sadness. The Union Rescue Mission, when we toured the facility and heard about all their programs, they do phenomenal work. They're incredible. They have programs to help provide a GED and education and uh, vocational training. They have specific programs for women and children, and we were able to serve one day at Hope Gardens, which is a 70-acre refuge on the outskirts uh, full of trees, and it's a place for women, single women uh, or women with children, to go and start a new life. 
But there downtown, they have many of their programs uh, focused on men, and we were really, really impressed. For a group of us who served in the kitchen, we were working with a gentleman who was the co-chef. He was in charge of the kitchen, and he was so friendly and so much fun. At the end of the day, he revealed to us that he had been a recipient of the resources at the Union Rescue Mission, that he had been addicted to drugs and been living on the street, and he came to Union Rescue Mission to receive their program. He graduated through that program, uh, went on to school, and came back and was hired and was one of their exemplary employees kind of rising through the ranks and now was uh, one of the co-chefs in charge of all their cooking. They provide meals uh, for about 2,000 people every single day. And we never would have guessed that about him because he was uh, so knowledgeable, he was so experienced, he was so friendly. We saw him differently, and to hear that he had once been homeless gave us a new way to think about this community. The thing that was probably most inspiring for me was when one of the mission staff members, uh, a lady named Shirley, spoke with us, and she asked us to not refer to this population of people, whether verbally or even mentally, to not refer to them as homeless. They're people. They're people who might be homeless, but don't put that label on them. They're not homeless. They're not addicts. They're people who are loved by God. She said the people who come to receive the programs at Union Rescue Mission aren't their clients. They're their guests. And all the people up and down the sidewalks who are sleeping beside uh, the mission are their neighbors. And she said, when you think of people differently, you treat them differently. And I think that's so important for us to really think of people in a different way, to transform our minds in the way we consider others, and that will change the way we act and treat one another. Sometimes... It's not enough to transform our minds. We also need to transform our lives. And so second, Jesus told the disciples that a grain of wheat must die. Now, he says this in this passage, a grain of wheat must die. It must be buried in the earth, and then it will bear much fruit. Now, of course, he's looking forward to his own death. His death was imminent, and he knew that he would be crucified and dead and buried, and through his death, all could receive new life. But it's interesting that he uses a grain of wheat in talking to us about what we're called to give, because a grain of wheat doesn't really die. A grain of wheat is planted, but it doesn't die in the ground. It's transformed, and it becomes something even better. It becomes what it was intended to be. If you can think of a grain of wheat, if somehow it had the capacity to choose its destiny for itself, if it chose not to be planted, it remains just a grain of wheat. But if it chooses to be planted, it becomes what it was always meant to be. It was created to be something that bears fruit. And that's how it is with us. When we choose to let ourselves be given for the sake of others we can find our lives being transformed and we can uh, bring new life to the world around us. 
One of the other places that the high school trip uh, served at was a place called Enrich L.A., And this is an organization that creates edible gardens and places them at schools in the Los Angeles School District. And it was founded by a man named Tomas O'Grady. Now, Tomas O'Grady is an Irish man. He has a beautiful wife named Justine. They have four children. And uh, we worked with Tomas, or I should say he worked us, all day long. And he uh, just was all over. He was so many places at once. He worked us hard. And uh, we could see transformation of this, this area where we were working. And it was so much fun to be with him. But all of that uh, garden, the idea for placing gardens in schools, came from his desire that children should know where their food comes from. They should eat healthier And they should be in tune with the earth around them. They should know uh, how important water is and how important plant life is to birds and butterflies. And he creates these living gardens, but they're laboratory space for the schools. The teachers design curriculum for the students to be involved in the gardens. And anyone in the community can harvest from these gardens. Uh, They can take food and eat in a more healthy way. But it all started because of his own transformation. Tomas was born and raised in the western part of Ireland, and he grew up on a farm. He's the son of a farmer. But in 1990, he found that he was out of work. And so he and his family moved to the United States. He only had $80 to his name. And they first went to... New Jersey, and he and his wife were involved in housing, and they worked to develop houses, and he got into building, and they became quite successful. Eventually, they moved to Los Angeles, and somewhere along the way, he had this realization of just how much his family had benefited from this country. He worked hard, but he was so grateful that he wanted to give back in some way. And so he created Enrich L.A. He has a goal of putting an edible garden at every school in the Los Angeles School District. Uh, That's a huge goal, but as of today, in just a few years, they've already established them in 200 schools. So it's an incredible thing. Now, it's all about transformation. They take space that is covered with concrete or weeds or garbage, and they transform it to a space that has benches. They create reading gardens. They take seeds and plant them in the earth, and they are transformed into plants that bring forth shade, fruits, vegetables, oxygen. And all of that, all of that transformation came because he himself was willing to set aside his career, to set aside the things he was doing for himself and his family, and instead focus on something even bigger, to lay down his life in, other, in order that others would prosper. And so this great transformation has taken place, and we got to to see that in a very real, tangible way. If we're willing to give of ourselves, that kind of act can bear incredible fruit for the world. And so third, Jesus said 
that in order to gain life, you must hate your life. Now, this is a hard teaching for us because it's contrary to what we know. Jesus isn't saying that you have to hate life here. We're called to find joy and meaning. What Jesus is saying that we need to invest who we are in things of value, in things of eternity. We shouldn't put everything about us, who we are, our values, our souls, and things that are passing and are temporary, we need to invest in things that matter. When I was reading the book of 50 children, and I got to the part of where the parents are actually saying goodbye to their children, that, of course, was the hardest part for me to read. I was, you know, tearing up because I couldn't imagine saying goodbye to your child. To be in a situation so desperate that you know that you're probably not going to survive. And the only way your child will survive is if you send them to another continent with strangers. What would that have been like? I, I just, all these emotions welled up in me that how do you say goodbye to your child for the last time? Now, Eleanor Krauss described it in her diary. She said, the worst thing I can imagine any person ever doing is separating a child from its mother. And yet, this group of people was pulling us in like a lifeboat in a raging sea. When it finally came time for the goodbye at the train station, she described the men as being very stoic and trying to keep everything in check. And and the mothers had put smiles on their faces because they wanted to send their children off in the best way. And to add insult to injury, they weren't allowed to wave goodbye to their children because they were afraid that would resemble the Nazi salute, and it was illegal for uh, Jewish people to make the Nazi salute. And so they told all the parents, you can't do this because it could bring trouble, it can bring too much attention. And so they had to say goodbye and not even wave to their children as they took off. As I was reading this passage, I thought about all these children who would never see their parents again. That's what I thought had happened because I knew what had happened in Austria. In Austria, over 33% of the Jewish population would not survive to the end of World War II. And yet I was wrong because of the 50 children, the ones that they knew their their biography, their history, they discovered that of the pool of their parents, only 7% didn't survive. Now, 7%, anyone dying is too much. But when you compare 33% who didn't survive to 7%, something is really different. Now, it could be very practical that because their children were someplace else that it brought new strength and energy, resolve to get to their children. It could have made a difference at the visa office later on when they were applying. Maybe it, you know, kind of sparked some emotion. My child is over there. I need a visa to get to my child. Maybe that helped. But I also think there's something spiritual at work. Because for all these parents, they felt that they were facing death and they wanted life for their child. And so they put their, 
their own needs aside and, and sought life at all costs for their child. And there's something that happens when you are invested in life for someone else. When you pour out life, some of it just splashes back on you. And I think that life that's poured out begets new life. The Talmud describes it that if you save one person, you save the world. When we are willing to give of ourselves, to be involved in things that may be risky or may uh, require sacrifice, if we are willing to help bring new life to even one person, new life will happen in this world. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers.